My name is Paul Rayburn, and I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And uh, here we are, firmly in 2023. Um, I'm not sure what you thought about 2022. I don't know everyone here. But uh, I know for the Rayburns and for Redeemer, it was a mixed bag, and I suspect it was similar for you. Um, There were some exceedingly difficult moments in 2022, and yet also there were some, well, I would say there was a lot of just felt mercy and grace provision from the Lord this year. It is certainly true uh, that He never leaves us or forsakes us, especially when things are difficult. And I know that many of you can echo that same thing in light of this past year. Um, I don't know if you've looked ahead to the passage this morning. Here at Redeemer, we just work straight through books of the Bible, and we're working through Luke. Um, But man, it is a doozy. Um, If you were hoping to maybe kind of ease into 2023, you are in the wrong place, baby, because that's not what's happening this morning. Um, Here in a few minutes, we're going to pick up with chapter 14, and we're going to look at 25 through the end of the chapter through 35. Um, But before we do that, I want to start uh, with just a quick look at a little passage from Romans 8. These are verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now you could preach weeks and weeks and weeks on just those three verses and still not do them justice. What I want to do is just focus in on kind of the middle, one little statement in there, and it says, for those of us who are Christians this morning, it is our destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ. It is our destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, just talking about 2022, one of the things that kind of defined that year for me, just kind of a small deal, um, I spent a lot of time dealing with computer issues. At the well, where I spend most of my time, we've got a lot of computers. In particular, the laptop that I use day in, day out for just about everything I do has been giving me a ton of trouble. It'll have difficulty starting up. Once it starts, it'll freeze. And of course, this never happens at a good time. I just need that thing to work, right? Because I've always got things that I've got to do. One of the things I've come across as I've gone down the rabbit hole trying to figure out how to fix this computer is this thing called computer imaging. And some of you who you know, know something about computers, you're going to know what this is. Um, me and maybe some of you have never heard of that before. But when you are trying to um, use a system image or a computer system image, what you're doing is you're taking a reference computer and you're taking the exact copy of that operating system, the software, all the program files, every single thing that's on that computer, and you are transferring all of that to another computer. And so sometimes to fix a computer, you take a system image, that snapshot of everything, and you transfer it to a new one. Sometimes, if you have a lot of computers that need to be doing the same kind of thing, you'll do a system image to multiple computers because you want them all to do a similar job. And so you see where I'm going with this metaphor. 
Jesus is our point of reference for who we're supposed to be. After all, the book of Genesis also tells us that we have been made in the image of God, and so for every one of us, that image has been corrupted by sin. And so now, with the help of God, we are to pattern our lives after Jesus to restore that image that functions properly, that behaves in the way that God has intended us to behave. And so this is not a passive process for us. It does require effort on our part. It requires us to stop, think, and then take some action. And as we get into the text this morning, the thing that I want you to be asking yourself this morning is this. If you're a writer, this might be something that you write down. What is my next step in being conformed into His image? What is my next step in being conformed to His image? Is there anything that God would have me think or do differently today so that I'm more like Jesus, so that that reference is now imprinted more firmly, more completely upon us. And really, anytime we approach the Word of God, we should be asking that question, whether you're reading at home alone, whether you're hearing the Word here or listening to a sermon from somewhere else, we should always approach Scripture in that way. But the reason why I lead with that this morning is because today's passage Man, it's just one of those that we're going to be tempted to just blow by because, frankly, it's really, really hard to look at and then know how to respond. So let's pray to that end, and then we'll read Luke 14, 25-35. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to sit under Your words today. Lord, I ask that You would speak clearly, that Your Spirit would be moving, that we would feel and know that you are here talking to each of our hearts. Would you help me not to get in the way? And would you have your way this morning in our lives? Amen. Okay, Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Goodness, Um, what a passage. In summary, Jesus just said, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to need to go ahead and hate your family, hate your own life, in fact, Commit yourself to suffering 
and the death of everything you wanted to accomplish in this life, and finally, get rid of everything that you own. That's what he said. That's what that says. This is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. And furthermore, that last little section about salt, what he's saying here is this is the only way you'll ever make any meaningful difference in the world. Okay, so now you see what I mean, how tempting it might be to just kind of water down Jesus' words, throw it back, put the glass on the table, and hurry up and ask the waiter for something new, all right? Because we want to get past this into next Sunday. But we're going to sit in this because we can trust the character of Jesus, right? That's the only reason you guys didn't get up. Maybe there was some social pressure also, all right? But um, we can look at this honestly because we trust Him, right? And even if this does happen to mean some hard things for us, we're willing to sit and at least give it some time. So just remember, here's the question. What is the next step in my obedience to the Lord? How can I be more conformed to His image? Okay, so last week, Danny Hendricks preached, and he did a great job of helping us understand that there were some hard words that Jesus said to a group of religious leaders in that setting. He did that a lot in his, in his ministry. Um, he was always just kind of sticking it to the religious leaders. And, you know, I'm sure all the common people in that day really loved that um, because he was always um, just making sure that those elites knew that they weren't that great. All right? And so any, anybody who was just a common guy kind of listening would have loved hearing Jesus put those dudes in their place. And there were also people who just loved following Jesus around because he was a great teacher. And they wanted to see miracles. And there were many who were excited that maybe just possibly Jesus could be this one who might lead them into a revolution so that Rome now would not be over them. So there was kind of something for everybody here. If you're a blue collar, uh, you like Jesus because he was sticking it to the elite. If you were into TED Talks, Jesus could give one heck of an explanation on the thing that you care about most, which was being a really, really good Jew. If you like the supernatural and you wanted some shock and awe, Jesus was healing sick people and raising the dead. If you were hungry, he literally made food from nothing and fed thousands of people on the spot until they were full. And if you hated Rome, man, he was the hope that at some point those people might leave and Israel might be its own nation. And Luke reminds us just in a very brief little section of 25 of that environment, he says, great crowds accompanied him. But here's all these people here for all these reasons, and Jesus turns and says to him, and, and by the way, he's never one to tickle anyone's ears. He's never one to say the thing that you want him to say necessarily. But here's what he says. Hey, I know all of you are here for a variety of reasons, um, and you may think that there's something here for you, but I'm telling you right now that following me is actually not for everybody. And he starts right in by challenging the supremacy of family in a first century Jew's life. This is verse 26. Whoever does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. He's exhausted there, right? That's like everybody possible in your immediate family. Okay, so now's a good time to point out that Jesus did not hate his own family. At the end of his life, Jesus was publicly executed. And as he was dying, he was thoughtful of his mom. And he used some of those precious last gasps of breath that he had to make sure that she was going to be cared for. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom uh, he loved standing nearby, this is John 19, by the way. He's on the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He's giving his mom to this trusted friend to care for her. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Women were especially vulnerable in that day and time, and uh, Jesus made sure that his mom was going to be okay. And then moments later he died. So here's what Jesus meant by telling the crowds that he would need to hate the family. Because that's, I mean, that's not really what he means. We know that. We know he's being, uh, he's using some hyperbole here. Already at this time, there were people who were being ostracized by the religious leadership for saying that Jesus was somebody special. If you said that Jesus was a prophet or that he was the Christ or the Messiah, the religious leadership, because they were jealous of him, they would cut you off. And so in that day, your participation in religious life, that was everything to a Jew. Everything revolved around being Jewish. Everything revolved around the synagogue, worshiping there, your relationships there. And so if you got cut off by the religious leadership, suddenly you were alone. And so in our culture, we don't really have something like that, where people are so just like intertwined directly to this one thing you know, the best, maybe the best um, thing is, is, or the best comparison is just, you're getting kicked off the island. So a Jewish person in the first century who committed himself to Jesus and not the religious leadership, they could very quickly find themselves, therefore, alienated from their family. And Jesus was saying, hey, if you follow me, you might have to make some decisions that your family's not going to agree with. After Jesus died and he was resurrected and the church began to grow, that phenomenon would only grow in intensity. Because being a disciple of Jesus would now mean that the Jews didn't have to follow Old Testament law. Circumcision, dietary restrictions, animal sacrifice, all of that was out the window because Jesus was instituting a new covenant. It was a new kind of way of relating to God. And yeah, families divide over that stuff because these were traditions that had been set for hundreds of years. And so we understand this. Um, we see this kind of thing portrayed in movies. Uh, that's the basic gist of the Disney movie Moana, right? Um, a little girl decides that she wants to do something different, and everyone tells her that that's not how we do things. We stay on the island, right? Um, we've seen this in history. Many Native Americans um, did not embrace their family members if they began to take on that European culture. And we see it um, today in other countries. Um, in some Muslim states, if you're Muslim and then you start to follow Christ, you can literally, be, literally and lawfully be killed because of your faith in Christ. And so for the people who were listening to Jesus' words, following him would mean breaking a lot of tradition, and people just don't like that in general. And so if we're really committed to being a disciple of Jesus, it's probably going to mean that for some of us, here, even in the Bible Belt, there's going to be some traditions that are going to be broken. And it's going to be more subtle than any of the examples I just listed, because in this part of the world, most people still would call themselves a Christian. That's changing, but for the most part, we're still in that part of the world. Before we get into all of those little implications, we need to first talk about what it means to be a disciple, because if we don't, we're not going to get this. Um, he says three times in this passage, if you don't do these things, 
um, you can't be my disciple. So let's stop and remind ourselves of what that means. Um, a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows him wherever he goes. Somebody who tries to be like him, to think and speak and act like him. If trusting the perfect life and death of Jesus is our initial step into a relation with him, if faith gets us started, discipleship is our active participation in becoming conformed to his image, being more like him. So we trust Christ and we're saved, but now we start to walk and become like him, and that's conforming to his image, and that's discipleship. So in a nutshell, um, what was Jesus like? And I don't want to oversimplify things, but here's three big picture things that Jesus was, okay? He was someone who didn't let the world around him be an influence. Okay? He wasn't influenced by the opinions, culture, traditions of others. Um, he took care of people routinely. And he used and created opportunities to help people see that he is the way to be reconciled back to God. That's what he did. All right? Took care of people. Didn't conform to the world. And he made sure everyone knew, I am the way back to God. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, at least those three things we need to be conforming to, we need to be imitating. Not be influenced by the culture. Be taking care of people. And use and create opportunities to show people that he is the way to be reconciled back to God. James 1.27 um, affirms this. It says that, Religious that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Matthew 28, 18-20 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's those three things. Don't conform to the world. Be about taking care of people. Make disciples. Show them that Jesus is the way to be reconciled back to God. So at Redeemer, we've got a word for this. Or I guess it's a phrase. Um, it's called being on mission. We're focused on building, building God's kingdom and not our own. That's what it means to be on mission. So if we're doing that it might mean that there's some things that we're going to do differently than our parents. It may mean that we're going to spend and save money differently than they taught us to. It could be that we're going to raise our kids in some different ways than they raised us. And so you can kind of feel the temperature rising a little bit, right? Like this is starting to get, it's starting to get close. Um, Maybe we have different views about what it means to have personal transparency and how we project ourselves to the community. It may mean that we vote differently than they do, or that we think and talk about politics differently than they do. It may mean that we invite different kinds of people into our home than they would, or maybe we spend less time with them because there are things that the Lord has called us to that we need to be busy doing. In short, it means this, that the Word of God, it drives our decision-making, not the advice of our parents or how they see the world. And of course, we don't hate them, okay? Jesus is, again, using hyperbole. 
We're called plainly in Scripture to honor our father and mother. And Jesus did that perfectly, because that's what he does. He does everything perfectly. Um, you might remember earlier in Luke, this is Luke 2. Jesus goes with his family, and he's a boy, he's 12, and he goes to Jerusalem for a festival. And um, so, at, you know, at the end of the festival, there's a caravan of people who are going back to his hometown, and Jesus is hanging out at the temple, and he doesn't know that they left. And his parents don't know that he's still there. And so, um, you know, at some point they realize it, okay? Um, and this is like, you know, parents' worst nightmare ever, okay? Big city, lots of people, I can't find my kid, and then not to mention we've lost the Son of God, and that kind of makes this like a bigger deal, right? Um, and so parents are freaking out, they go back into Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, and he's just sitting there, engaging with the religious leaders, um, and he's, you know, he, he's, just, he's, in, he's in the temple. But this is what he says, or this is what it says whenever they find him. When his parents saw him, this is Luke 2, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. They went down to Nazareth. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So when Mary found Jesus, and he's just sitting in the temple, she says, Son, why have you treated us like this? But you could almost hear her say it like this, Son, why have you hated us so? And I think this helps us to understand and maybe get closer to what Jesus means. Sometimes our parents aren't going to understand or maybe even approve of what we do because we are absolutely enthralled with our Heavenly Father. Because we're committed to His Word and completing His mission. Because we're going to tell our parents that relationship that I have with the Lord, it comes first. And so that's what, that can be a hard thing. And there's going to be a range of emotions. And you saw that range of emotions with Mary. At first she's angry. And then what did it say? Then she treasured those things in her heart. And I, and I, I think that some of us have experienced that, that some of us who have done some things that were different than our parents, um, you know, at first, you know, parents were like, man, I, I raised this kid, and what is happening? This, this kid is crazy. Um, but then over time, what happens is when the fruit of those decisions begin to, to show, then parents are like, oh, okay, I get it, I see. So, <clears throat> Jesus doesn't just talk about um, hating parents. He also talks about hating your wife and your kids. And so what is it, you know, let's start saying it like this, because that, that, you know, that's, that's kind of cringy. Uh, what does it mean to put the Lord before our spouses and kiddos? Um, husbands, here's what it might mean. Um, it means that we're on guard against mission drift. It, it means that it's our job to set a course in our marriages and our families where the worship of Jesus and serving Him is primary. So husbands, what we're doing is we're praying and we're asking the Lord for what it looks like to be on mission as our family. What does this look like for us? Because it'll be different depending on your, your situation. Um, and then, you know, it's going to be difficult to follow through. There's going to be times when you said, hey, I want to do this thing. Our family's going to do this thing. And we're going we're to follow Jesus into obedience here. 
And there's going to be times when that's not easy. And it's, husbands, it's going to be your job to look at your spouse and look at your kiddos and gently say, hey, remember, this is what we're doing and this is why this is actually better. And here's why we made that decision. Wives, it means that those times when your husband, when he's got a big head and, and he's, he's acting self-centered, it means that you are gently reminding him. All right, It works both ways. You also are reminding. Remember what we decided? Remember what we were doing? This is about the Lord and His kingdom. It's about you know, wives and husbands. It's about looking at your kiddos. And it's drawing them in as you're on mission. One of the best things that you can do for your kids is to... This is going to be hard to hear. One of the best things that you can do for your kids is make your life not all about them. To show them that there is a world of purpose, a satisfying, fulfilling, joy-filled world of serving other people and seeing them, seeing them come to know God. And if you make your life about that and then pull them into that, you're praying with them, you're talking with them, this is what we're doing, you're reminding them, this is why this is important, and this is why we love people, then those kiddos now, even though they're not always getting what they want, they're getting something better. Following Jesus is just expensive, but when we faithfully imitate Him, our spouses, our kiddos, they're going to see the Lord work and they're really going to understand what Jesus meant when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's Scripture. That's not just a saying. All right, that's Jesus. It is more blessed to give to receive. Okay, so just in case you were not sufficiently offended by the call to hate everyone in your, in your immediate family, Jesus finds this way to like take it up a notch. Um, he tells us that if we want to be his disciple, we also have to hate our own life. For the disciples closest to Jesus and for many others, it meant that they were going to leave the family business. Several of them were fishermen, and they dropped the nets at a moment, and they just decided, hey, like I'm not going to do this anymore. It meant abandoning what felt secure and familiar so they could travel from town to town, sleeping in random places, sometimes sleeping on the ground, um, and, and they would preach, and then sometimes people didn't like it. People would get angry, they would throw stones, they would beat them. They would try to murder them. And so for most of us, probably all of us in this room, that's not going to be our reality. But it is going to mean some things for us. And here's what it might mean. <clears throat> it might mean that there's a, you know, like some kind of country, country song or hip-hop um, movement that you're trying to model your life after. We do this. Like, you know, here's the image created in, in, in media that we want to try and imitate. Um, it, it could be a romantic comedy that we're desperately trying to live out in our own life. And if we're honest, this is the kind of thing that we do. Um, it, it may be that there's a collection of, of famous people or even locally successful people that we're trying to copy and model our lives after. What it means to hate our own life is that all these things, these preconceived notions about what our life is supposed to look like, this image that we want to project, that all of that has to be checked at the door. If we have career goals, Jesus is going to tell you, yeah, you've got to check those at the door. If you've got retirement goals, yep, those too. You have relationship standards, yeah, we're going to have to revamp some of those because some of these things are off. 
You got a vision for how you're going to spend your evenings and weekends, vacations, all that? Yeah, yeah, that too. Some of those things are going to have to look different because our natural tendency is to take all of those things, career, family time, vacation, finances, retirement, we want to take all of those things, our natural inclination, inclination is to make those 100% about us. It's just who we are. And Jesus is saying, no, the cost of discipleship actually means potentially the death of everything that you want. And even the good things that we want, sometimes He's just going to tweak and turn and He's going to use them for different things. When we begin a relationship with Jesus, absolutely nothing is off the table. He claims it all. And so, you know, when we first come to faith, we know it means the death of, of, of sin, right? There are obvious sins that, that we understand, hey, Jesus is calling me to repent. That's part of getting saved. We realize, hey, I need a Savior. I've got to repent from these things. But what we don't understand when we first come to faith is that there are other things that are so intertwined and interwoven in our culture that we don't even realize that they're opposed to Scripture, and those things begin to be uncovered as time goes by. It means that we hold everything with an open hand. We're going to hold our education, our standard of living, our social status, all of it. We hold all of that with an open hand, and we say, Jesus, whatever you decide, whatever serves you and your purposes. And so I know right now what you're thinking. I can see some of your faces. You're thinking, Paul, this is a slippery slope. And I'm starting to get uncomfortable because it sounds like you're saying that if we just follow this line of thinking, that I might just need to own less stuff and start using my time and make more of a priority to focus on my relationships with other people. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, He's already said that all throughout Luke. He's already said, this is Luke 12, I've come to bring, to bring division, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and so on. He's already warned us that following Jesus might mean some family, um, some family conflict. He's already said, this is Luke 14, don't miss out on my banquets. All the best things about my kingdom because you're busy with your business endeavors and your family obligations. He's already said some hard things to us. He's already said, don't amass a huge fortune so that one day you can live comfortably and do nothing with your life. He's already said that. That was the parable of the rich young fool, or the rich fool, Luke 12. He's already said, little flock, sell your possessions. Give to the needy, thereby making yourself rich toward God. That was Luke 12. But Jesus is the greatest of teachers, and he knows, as a good teacher, the best ever, that sometimes we have to hear a message over and over and over again before it really starts to take root in us. And then sometimes he knows that he's going to say some things with an edge that we need to hear things said with an edge so that we'll be motivated to actually take some action. And that's what he's doing in this passage. What he's saying, it's, it's got an edge. He's going to follow up these hard statements with a couple of word pictures to drive the point home. Okay? 
Um, the, the first is this concept of building a tower. Verses 28 and 30. You know, the idea is 28 through 30. The idea is pretty simple. Before you start any construction project, all right, if you're going to build a tower, uh, you have to figure out what is it going to cost me. Okay? You check that number against what's in the bank account, and if you have enough, then you build. And if you don't, then you don't build. Okay? Um, so he's telling us, being my disciple, but before you can do that, you're going to have to count the cost. And by the way, buildings are expensive. He gives us a second word picture after that. This is verses 31 and 32. And it's that of the king and his army about to engage in a battle against the king with a much bigger army. And so the weaker king is going to have to take a minute and he's going to have to assess. Um, do we have enough manpower here to be able to keep from being overrun? Or do I need to go ahead and do I need to give, um, give this guy basically whatever he wants? Okay, that's the position that the king is in. And you have to notice that this is a lose-lose situation. If you're going to successfully destroy an army that's twice your size, you've got to put every dude out there, everybody, all right? And you've got to expect to take heavy losses. On the other hand, if you're going to ask for terms of peace, you're going to have to give that guy whatever he wants. And so accordingly, listen to verse 33. This summarizes that, this summarizes that situation and also this whole passage of teaching. He says this, Therefore, any one of you that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So um, this is what it takes, by the way, to make a meaningful difference in the world for God's kingdom. It looks like, uh, you know, these last couple of statements about salt, um, it looks like those are, are, are a little bit kind of just randomly set between this passage and the beginning of, of chapter 15. Um, in fact, your Bible probably has a little subheading that, that says something about salt or saltiness. Um, and really that does the passage an injustice because it makes it feel like this is disconnected, but it's not. Um, being a disciple of Jesus and being salty in the world are absolutely 100% connected. In the ancient world, um, salt was used for two things. It was made to make food taste better, okay? but it was also used to preserve food. And so uh, to, to be salty didn't have anything to do with margaritas or being hard to get along with. Okay, It didn't mean that. Um, then and now in the Bible, what salty means, and if I can say this without being trite, it means the Christian makes the world a better place. That's what it means to be salty, to preserve things, to keep them good, and to make them better. And so in our homes, if we are salty Christians, I can't even say it without thinking. Um, if, in our homes, if we are salty Christians, it means that our homes are functional and our kids are thriving under our care. It means our spouses are being attended to and they're being encouraged by the way, all of that takes personal sacrifice. If you're going to create that environment in your home, it's going to cost you something. It means when we go to work, we work hard, we pull our weight, and we stay out of the drama, and we don't create drama. It means as bosses and business owners that we create a work environment where people can flourish in their gifting, and we provide opportunities for them to continue to work and, make, um, and grow professionally and grow financially. It means all of those things. It means with our extended families that we're peacemakers. That's what it means to be salty with our extended family. 
It means that we are ever considering what the Lord might be doing in the lives of the people around us. And this is a big one. When we go to work, when we're with our families, with our extended family, with our friends, we're considering what is the Lord doing in this person's life? And is there any way that I can be a part of it? Because the Lord is moving. The Lord is working. That's why many of you are here this morning. Because the Lord has done something in your life and you're here. He's been working. And there was some relationship, some person that helped draw you in to this place, to these people, to this church, to this connectedness. And so we need to also now be asking ourselves, what else is the Lord doing at work with these people? It changes the reason why we do things. It changes the reason why we go to school. It changes the reasons why we go to work. We don't go to work just to make the money, just to get the promotion, just to get by. Now we're going to work because those people need the Lord and we're looking for those opportunities to help facilitate that. Even when things are difficult. It means in our homes, with our kids, again, a cynic family, all of that, everything changes now our perspective. All of this is a possibility for the Lord to be building His kingdom. How can I be involved? Just as a matter of principle, nothing in our own lives or in the world around us really changes for the better unless we're prepared to endure discomfort. Because what I'm talking about us doing, going out in the world and being about other people, it means the death of what we want, and that is uncomfortable. But the fruit from that, the meaningful relationships, people being reconciled to God, it is worth it. So, you know, as we're closing, why would we do this? Okay? Um, we do want to see fruit. Okay? But really, why would we do this? And I think the answer is, uh, it's very simple, um, but it's also incredibly profound. The reason why we do this is because Christ did it for us first. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you might through His poverty might become rich. Jesus left heaven to become a man to enter the human race. He lived a life of hardship, persecution, suffering for people who didn't even understand why he was there. And then he died painfully in our place so that we wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God on our sin. That's what Jesus did. He carried his cross. He suffered. He gave up so that we could gain. And it's our job to imitate that. If you've never um, transferred a computer's imaging system from you know, one computer to the other, you have to know that it is not a fast thing. Okay? If you've got anything that you have to do, you better just wait. All right? It's not a 15, 30 second download, update. It is like a three to five hour process. And so it is with our conforming to the image of Christ. It's a long process. It's a lifetime. And so today, you know, you've heard this message, which is basically saying, hey, change everything about your life. Don't think of it that way, okay? Think of it as this. What is my next step in obedience now? Where is the Spirit leading me? Is it a financial decision? Is it a relational decision? 
Is it some commitments that I need to make to my family? What is it that I need to do today to be more closely committed to being like Jesus? And so the, the band's going to come up, and uh, they're going to play for a few moments. And I, 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 I want to give you the opportunity just to, to think and pray to that end. Lord, what would you have me do today? And, and, and I'm going to be praying for the Spirit to work in all of us, that there's some, um, some leading, if that hasn't already happened, that there might be some action that we could take. Because here's what this, of all the things this passage means, it does not mean this. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything differently. It can't mean that. Okay, It can't mean that we walk out and nothing at all is different. Those are not the kind of words that we just we heard from the Lord. So let's pray. Band's going to come up. And um, here we go. Lord, uh, we, we, just, we thank you um, for your word this morning. Um, there is a proverb that says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so you are the best of friends. And, um, and what you have said today may possibly have wounded us, and yet we can trust you that the result um, is meant for our good and for your glory. So will you help us, Lord, uh, to be willing and ready um, to be about your kingdom? Amen.